This is SciBite, episode 83, for February 26th, 2013. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science, news and information podcast. Fresh every Wednesday morning over at jupiterbroadcasting.com and we're live Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey Heather, happy science to you. Happy science. All right, what are we talking about this week? This week we're going to take a look at a tiny exoplanet, new medical glue, dogs, a private Mars mission, updates on bionic eyes and the Russian meteorite, curiosity news, and as always, to keep back in the history and up in the sky this week. Great Caesar's ghost. Heather, if I was the publisher of a newspaper, I would be impressed with that lineup. Let's move on to our first story. All right, Heather, what is our first story? All right, every once in a while, it comes out some exoplanet, crazy, new, didn't think about it. This time... Very tiny one. This guy is really small, smaller than Mercury. A little bit bigger than the moon, but smaller than Mercury. But we're still considering it a planet. Yes. Okay. So what they did is they've come through a collaboration of from this Kepler Space Telescope and a number of international researchers who used astroseismology. So... Seismology, you know, that's where you read the, you know, the quake, earthquake waves and that kind of a thing. Okay. Well, sound travels into a star and it brings information back to the surface. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought sound didn't travel through space. Sound? Well, inside a star is what I'm saying. It's Oh, okay, in, okay. So there's <clears throat> these waves inside of a star. They create oscillations. Okay. In the surface as things are rolling around. So, and depending on how rapid they are, it affects the star's brightness. Really? So they can measure these oscillations in the, in the brightness to kind of see that there's a constant, you know, star quake. The hands in air, finger quotes. And they turn these tiny vibrations into, from light, sort of into sounds. Huh. That's where it was coming from. Okay. And so... You know, kind of like how scientists use seismic waves by earthquakes to sort of probe the interior structure of the Earth. So they're able to see how the earthquake moves from place to place. You know, if you have an earthquake in California, what are the readings in Ohio? What are the readings on the East Coast? Mm -hmm. So those kind of things, what are the readings somewhere else in the world? You know, Mm -hmm. in Europe, if you can get any. Mm -hmm. And so through all those, how the waves travel and propagate tells you about what's inside the Earth's surface. What does it bounce off of? What does it slow down? So you can kind of get an idea similarly to a a star Hmm. based on what kind of these oscillations they're seeing. So barely discernible. These, I mean, really high frequency. And generally the brightness of small stars makes it really difficult to measure. Mm. A bigger star has a lower frequency or, you know, pitch of its song. It's lower. So it's easier to see with 
see, see those. But high frequency is a little harder to catch and measure, and that is in small stars. So you're looking at a bright, you know, smaller surface of light and high frequency. So it makes it a little bit difficult. But what they were able to do is see, they're looking at this star and uh, Kepler-37. And so they're able to look and see, you can measure the size of a star based on all those things. So you're able to see that they're able to get a couple of the other planets. So they had, you know, one, the star itself is about three quarters of the size of the sun. About 210 light years away. Now, because of the oscillations, we're able to get the size to about 3% accuracy. So we know the size of the star very, fairly precisely, within 3%. And so we're able to take those readings. Essentially, we're able to see the dimming of that star. We're able to sort of calculate, all right, here are the oscillations that are changing the brightness of the star barely. And then here's something that dips the light of the star enough that we can say there is a planet. Mm -hmm. But this is by far the smallest thing that we've ever seen. It took a really long time to actually verify it. So able to see these. There's two other planets. All three of them are less than could orbit inside the orbit of Mercury. So they're really close. They have, you know, their quote-unquote years are 21 to 40 days. So they're rotating around really fast. And what I found really interesting about this was that the thing that saved them be able to see this dip in the starlight for this planet was mainly because there weren't a lot of sunspots. Oh. Sunspots themselves would have dimmed the star approximately as much as this planet. So they had to wait until the sun was fairly calm, or it was fairly calm, which they kind of lucked out. So there wasn't a lot of sunspots for this planet to fight with. So that, it was amusing to me that, I don't know, it could be just me, that the light for the darkness of a sunspot would have... That um, that change in brightness in it itself, yeah, would have muddied the data for this planet. Because it makes you realize how massive those sunspots are. Yeah, well, and the fact that this planet is so tiny. Yeah, that too, right? So they were, I mean, they see that there's two other planets, sm slightly smaller than the Earth. One small, sorry, one a little bit smaller than the Earth. One yeah. twice as big. But so uncovering this. Uncovering this plant, this tiny planet in another solar system out there says, wow, if we detected one mm. this small, close in, mm -hmm. then it's very likely that there are a lot of others. Yeah, especially when you consider that sunspot, uh, you know, if, the, if, if a sunspot would, if, if a sunspot would maybe hide the fact that there's these planets, these smaller planets there, then yeah, yeah there could be a lot of activity out there that we just attribute to sunspots or whatever. We, we you know, it's yeah. noise. I mean, the dimming of the star, if sunspots is sort of as a certain, like you were saying, specific amount of noise and the planet is inside that, then, 
as you were saying, it's much harder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this is uh, Kepler 37B, they're calling it? Yes. So, they've got, so we've got Kepler 37B, and we've got 37C, e. and 37D in this chart yeah. here. And 37D, that's a big boy. Yeah. So He's about twice as big as the Earth. B is just slightly larger than our moon. Us. Right? Yes. Am I looking at this? Just, yeah. Yeah, yep, just and, slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's so, a planet. So B is what they just found, and it's slightly larger than our moon. Yes. So imagine 210 light years away, we saw the moon's, you know, older, slightly larger twin right. orbiting a star. That is actually pretty significant. I mean, to, see, to spot something the size of our moon that far away is pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, this is definitely, they're pretty much saying this is... They're fairly sure this is the edge of what they would be able to see. There is no farther. Hmm. I mean, this in of itself took a really long time to verify. <laughs> a whole bunch of different, you know, things had to come together in data sets. So, until we get another instrument, a more powerful instrument, then this will be the edge. But then again, we're seeing things slightly bigger than the moon. I don't know. That's a fairly good edge for me right now. <laughs> yeah, really, no kidding, size. right? Yeah, but I mean, I don't want to be judgy, but if you're if you're planet smaller than a moon, I don't think you're worth our trouble. I mean, I'm not, <laughs> try, I'm not trying to be judgy, oh. but let's just be honest. Okay, we're we're in it, we're in it for reals. All right, Heather. Well, uh, of course, links, more information, pictures, and all that stuff can be found in the show notes. Especially useful for you audio folks out there. Any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. All right, then, let's uh, take a pause here, and I just want to remind everybody, just a quick little reminder, there are six days and 22 hours remaining for the TechSnap Limited Edition 100 t-shirt. The TechSnap 100, uh, just uh, the the TechSnap train moves right along. We're doing this limited edition run, and uh, a lot of people have learned through this shirt that uh, the show actually stands for Systems Network Admin Podcast. People didn't really know that's what the snap stood for. So now oh. the back of the shirt's there to let them know. Like People have been listening for 100 episodes and caught that. Even though I introduce every single episode as Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration podcast. But that little detail was lost on a lot of people. I'm not making fun. I'm not making fun. That's why we put on a shirt for you guys. Uh, so the other thing I probably should mention is uh, this week will be TechSnap's 99th episode, and next week will be TechSnap 100 live on Thursday, the 7th of March. Uh, that's going to be a great show to tune in for. We, we, I think we'll have a lot of fun for our 100th episode, so I'd love to have you join us. And, uh, and uh, of course, we'll have a link in the show notes if you want to grab the limited edition TechSnap 100 for $13.37. So cheap, we're not even making money on it, but we love you guys. So there you go. Get a link to that and celebrate the 100th episode of the TechSnap program. All right, and thank you, everybody, who does that. Now, Heather. Yes. What do you say we move right on to the News Bite? Let's go. Oh, I just, the music sounds so official. All right, Heather, what is uh, our News Bite story of du jour? All righty. Not even super glue can stick to wet environments. You put it in your sink, you try to stick something to it, it's not going to work. Yeah. Because that layer of water forms to keep the two surfaces from bonding. Protective barrier. Yes. Now, mussels, the, not the ones in your arm, but the ones in the ocean. Oh, okay. They somehow are able to move the water aside, sort of, and bind themselves to rocks anyway. They uh. have these little strands that are actually able to connect to rocks and are 
very strong. And they actually are able to stick even in water. So one scientist or one researcher now says that he's been able to use that same trick and develop medical application for it. Oh, very clever. Taking inspiration from nature. Yes, this happens fairly often. Yeah. Now, this specific glue, um, right off the bat, they're thinking maybe it could be used to seal uh, fetal membranes. So you can do prenatal surgery to repair birth defects. And oftentimes try to sew that up and it still leads to premature labor, Mm. labor and things of that nature. So this might be able to seal it up and be fine. Now, they've actually... So they have this thread-like polymer of polyethylene glycol that's able to mimic that. Hmm. And so parts of the protein are actually facing out towards the heart surface. And that's sort of enabling the liquid protein to solidify really rapidly and to stick whether it's wet, salty, or whatever. Now, they have actually done some live animal testing. One veterinary sur- surgeon did a small incision in the carotid artery of a dog. You know, put four stitches in it, in the, the length of it, held it in place, but there was still a little bit of bleeding when it got pressed. Now, when they used this glue, after about, tw- you know, applied it, and then after 20 seconds, completely sealed, didn't bleed whatsoever. Oh, wow. So now they're testing it on the fetal membranes of rabbits. So they've seen, you know, what's happening when they seal it back up. And it's actually quite a bit better. The results are, I think, raise it up from 30 to 40% success to all the way up to 60. So it's a big jump in the success rate of it. And this is just the very beginning. So are stitches going to be a thing of the past? Possibly, maybe, in some future. Mm. I mean, they already have, you know, the glue mm-hmm. that they sort of put on. Mm-hmm. It may have whacked my head open at one point, and they stick a couple, they stick a little glue in there and press it together. Heather, you bumped head your head? Together. Never. I know. Then my head's held together with a little bit of super glue. But this may be even better, because it'll work on the completely what's like internal organ surfaces. So... They're thinking that once this is becoming more available, you know, they've been trying to surgically repair birth defects, um, you know, while in utero. So spina bifida. Spina bifida is when something happens and there's, you know, the vertebrae in the back are are large or they didn't form, didn't uh, hook up correctly. And this part of the spine can end up outside of the body. Ooh. And that causes obvious, mm-hmm. there's a lot of medical issues and sure. oftentimes uh, paralysis. So they're trying to go in and see if you can fix that before, you know, in utero. And so if they're able to do this, maybe they'll be able to go in, put everything, you know, back inside, then seal up the uterus and be able to hopefully see, you know, does that help? What kind of things that can Wow. You know, they can they they can do wow, and there's other things that they've been trying to go for, and so this is all coming together to say this is just the first step. Now they're looking to actually um, chemically alter it so that the glue would actually shrink when it hardens. 
So you could counter tissue swelling during surgery. You know, if it's ear in surgery, then everything could be, you know, a little bit swollen. So if you put this, the new, you know, shrinking glue on there, then it would glue. And then as the tissue, you know, came down the swelling, then the glue would be tightening up as well. So there's a lot of interesting ways that this might help. And I'm kind of looking forward to see where this specifically goes. Yeah, no kidding. And, and I, I love the idea because I, I can picture like futuristic uh, field equipment that has like the glue built into it. And if somebody gets uh, somebody gets cut up, you you know, you could be like out on the field. You could if you could somehow treat the wound and then seal it with this stuff right then and there. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot harder. Uh, that's a lot. That's a lot easier. Yes. Than you know, actually sewing somebody up. Yeah. Or I was just thinking uh, for, you know, heart surgery or things like that. They have to go in and they have to, you know, stitch things to get back together in various places. Well, maybe you could instead, you know, use this glue and then there's not, you know, so many, not stitches in there. So there's a lot of different ways this can go. And it's, it's fairly exciting to think how far we're going in these different directions. No kidding, huh? And it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, I love it when it's inspired from nature too. Yes. Just, uh, let, let nature work it out for us. All right, Heather, well, this next story is one that strikes at the hearts of pet owners. The heart, or at least yes. the dinner table. Yes, often <laughs> of the snack tray. So, as everyone who's had a dog and or cat or nor some inside animal may have noticed, they like to steal food sometimes. Yeah. That, that is their, oftentimes their goal. They seem, now, to, they seem to actually almost obsess on it. Yes. Now, a new study actually suggests that dogs might understand people better than we thought, such that when they're told not to snatch a piece of food, they're more likely to disobey You're in a dark moon, a dark room than a light room. Now, what it is is their thinking is that, you know, they took 84 dogs and they had these, you know, food strangers in a room. It's like, don't get the food. And so... No matter whether the person was, whether they could see the person, but if the food was in the dark, then they were more likely to go snatch it. Because they figured the person wouldn't be able to see them? Yes. And that in and of itself is an interesting phenomenon because you're, it's a whole different thought process of being able to see what the other person sort of thinking about what the other person is seeing. So you're able to, so just being able to do that gives us a whole other layer of how much they can think. There's a... Yeah, you know, as, as, a, as a lifetime pet owner, this does not surprise me at all. Yes. I, I, also cats. I'm going to just put yes. that out there. I don't know if they've done studies on cats, but cats are, oh man. I tell you, I had these cats that knew just the right time, knew how to avoid all of my countermeasures to get up on the counter and get food. I even tried like putting tinfoil and tinfoil pyramids up and tinfoil mm -hmm. traps. Nothing, Heather. No success. Yeah. And I had dogs that would steal food too. Yeah. That was a video. I think you played it in the, uh, <laughs> yeah, in the live stream. Yeah, the is. husky. <laughs> and that husky. These... Now, the person set up this camera <laughs> and turned around and was typing on their computer. So they wasn't facing him. And then the husky, you know, sneaks up and he's trying to steal the food. And at he's one point, not looking. And at one point, he stops and sits there, and is like, 
you know, giving him the beg look and kind of puts his paw up. And that's when the person turned around. So he's like, yep, totally knew when I was looking, totally knew when I wasn't. Mm -hmm. So I would I would say now that uh, as uh, webcams and uh, and things like this become more prevalent, we will finally document the fact that these animals have been claiming to be our best friends. When in reality, I think they've been using us for our pizza. They've been using us for our pizza. Mm -hmm. I suspect, Heather. Yeah, he was stealing bread pizza crust. Science doesn't necessarily, you know, support the idea of giving pizza crust to your dog. Yeah. But Yeah, that's for sure. It's probably not the best thing on their diet. Yeah, but it all comes into this theory of mind. The under, Like I was trying to say earlier, the understanding that others have a different perspective, knowledge, and feelings than we do. Mm. So being able to look at something else or someone else and say, you see things dif- you see something different, you know something different, you feel something different than I do, and I can realize that. These tests that they're giving dogs are more and more resembling things that they give young children or uh, chimpanzees, bonobos. Now, they're at- dogs are actually performing much better in specific tests than you know, chimp- chimpanzees and such. Really? Like they almost have more like an empathy capability or, uh, or you know, that type of... Well, dogs have spent you know, thousands of years with people, so they're able to read better. So say, you know, they, I think they had talked about it before, this test where they have, you know, three cups. And, you know, there's the chimpanzee versus the dog. And they don't see which treat is under. And you just look. You don't do anything else. You just look towards the cup that has it. Chimpanzees aren't really able to get that. Dogs, two seconds that they have the treat. Mm. You know, you look at there and they're like, <laughs> oh, yes. Well, like we have a, a dog in the office. I don't like him sleeping on the door because if the people try to come and make deliveries, then he wakes up and he's all barky and then they're scared and they try to run. So I just come in there and I look at him and then I look at the center of the floor and he just kind of drops his head and gets up and goes and sits in the middle of the and the floor. He's like, oh, you saw me. <laughs> now I can like walk through it if I'm not paying attention. Then he just kind of flicks an ear. He's like, eh, I'm good. But if I stop and look at him, then he's like, oh, man, I was spotted. When I was in high school, we growing up, I had a border collie. And mm-hmm. that border collie was able to read the facial expressions of everyone in the family. And would like if we were uh, angry or if we were sad or whatever, it would she would be able to read those expressions and you know, respond accordingly. Like if somebody was sad, she would try to comfort them in her own little doggy way. And if somebody had a grumpy expression, she would kind of get out of their way. And I just was always really impressed with like, wow, look at this dog, like reading human facial expressions. That's incredible to me. Yeah. It's, you know, he goes, you know, the dog in the office goes around hunting for, you know, at lunchtime. He's like, sweet, I can beg. He just kind of walks in my direction. (laughs) I raise my eyebrows at him, puts his head down sadly tromps away with his tails down. He's like, aw. Not going to work with that one. Yep. Hairless monkey. So it's these one ideas that it's things that all dog owners or pet owners are fairly familiar with. You're like, yes, the dog sneaks treats when I'm not looking. You know, it doesn't matter (laughs) if he can can see me. It's whether I can see him. Mm Mm-hmm. So. He knows when you've been sleeping. Yes. They know when you're awake. (laughs) Very funny. Well, I think any uh, longtime pet owners in our audience would probably confirm that study. I don't. I think they probably could have just called up the owners in our uh, pet owners in our audience, and they would have just confirmed it for them right there on the spot. 
save them. Yeah, the there are a number of these these sort of research things that come back, and you're like, yeah, we knew that. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes the way that they do the study, it's you know a controlled area. You know, they have a controlled environment test going on, so they know yes, nothing else is going on. You know, it's across this you know a band of dogs. And then it also gives them another idea of specific, testing specific things about how the doggy brain works. How smart are they? And of course, there's those poor dogs that run into, you know, glass doors. But <laughs> those are also the ones that, you know, go and find your glasses case and hide it somewhere. And it takes you a little while to go find it. Oh, I think I detect a little dog hate coming out of Heather. It's all right. It's cool. I don't. I'm not oh, absolutely it. not. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious that he, you know, got it, brought it back to his little cage, nuzzled it under some blankets so that it wasn't hidden, so that during the day he could just lay on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, very good, Heather. If uh, any pet owners out there want to go check out that story, of course, Heather will have the link in the show notes. But Heather, uh, any other thoughts on that one? No, I don't think so. All right, then. With that study filed, that means it's time for the Two Bite News. What? I don't know. That choir. I don't (laughs) know. Gotta get a new choir, Heather. Yeah. All right, so this got my attention this week, and I thought, boy, I hope Heather talks about this. And of course you will, because it's a Mars story, and boy, if I could, you know, maybe you could wrap the story with tell me where I enlist, and I'm all set. (laughs) Yes. Now, the big news was Dennis Tito, the first space tourist, he bought himself a ticket up to the space station on one of the Russian Soyuz rockets, first person to do so. Came out, he's planning a Mars mission in 2018. It's going to go. It's a round trip of 500 days. Right. in the air. And all the headlines said privately manned mission. Yes. So it's part of like the SpaceX thing, it sounded like. Yeah, except for the part where it's not. Ah. You read further and you actually look at it and there are no people involved. Uh Uh-huh. Absolutely no people involved. All they're trying to do is they're getting, they want to get the systems together. Just kind of. Lego block everything together and throw what? it to Mars and it'll orbit Mars. Now, it will actually. I mean, nobody's no, going to land no, actually, on Mars? Nobody lands on Mars in this plan? No, no, there is no landing. Actually, I was looking. It's not even going to orbit. I'm sorry, it's what? Literally just, it's not even going to orbit Mars. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, it's just going. There's no crew and it's just going to fly by Mars. I don't know. I'm starting to get uh, kind of a bad feeling about this one. Yeah, there's. So all they're doing is they have all these life support systems that they're kind of working with NASA from. Now they they just sort of have a NASA has a role with them in sort of in terms of you know they're, they're supporting the life support and the thermal protection systems, just sort of you know giving them some ideas, being a contractor essentially. Now this is putting it together, so they're pretending it'll actually work. Now this is the kind of thing where. He's like, crew comfort, limited. Survival level only. Sponge baths, perfectly fine. That's all you need. But in the end, what this is, is bringing it back to, it was a really flashy news bite. And it comes down to... definitely got some play. I saw it on a lot of different sites. Yes, but a little bit further is, he's making, he's going to give a 
you know, present it. But it is going to just be, I'm sticking, you know, a Lego block working can and throwing it at Mars. So is this more like trying to get people excited about the idea? It's the idea. That's some of the thoughts is that. So it's vaporware. It's kind of vaporware. It's kind of like uh, it's uh, not vaporware because it's not software, but there's no, no, there's no mission planned. Yeah, there is going to be actual, uh, an actual can thrown at Mars. But, you know, it's going to have, no, it's a fancy there will can. Be, it's there got will life be people, So there will be people on said can. No, no people. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so it's, it's just an empty bus that they're driving by bars. So they have it all. Okay. You know, it's one of the fancy buses. It's got, you know, the bathroom and the, you know, the fold out bed and stuff. And they're just, nobody's on it. They just have it on like autopilot. They just want to send bars. it out there and say, yep, the ship on its own did fine. Yeah. That's pretty much what they want to do. And just the say, hey, big look, deal we- will be, is this the first time a private company has done this? Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. It'll be the first time a private company has gone all the way to Mars. All right. Okay. So you know that what? That's itself big. is. Yeah, that's big. That's big. That is that is big. It's just not as shiny and flashy as some of the news headlines led everyone to believe. Yeah. I saw that and I was like, 2018? Hmm. Skeptical. Uh-huh. Heather is skeptical. Well, I mean, I wish they were saying 2014, we're going to orbit the thing and come home. 2018, we're going to send somebody out there. That would be so, I mean. I guess I just uh, well, have to be patient. Yeah, that would be cool, but yeah. wow, I don't think that would happen. No, I, I see the calendar, and no, not quite that quick. Nope, nope. But speaking of things that are uh, moving along quite quick, we have some stories that have uh, leveled up and got some updates here, don't we? That's right. We've talked about bionic eyes a couple of times. <laughs> so there's this, we talked about the first module of, they go in and they implant a subretinal wireless, you know, fifteen hundred pixel microchip in the back of a, your retina. This is for specifically for people who the the nerves from the eye going to the brain they work just fine. It's just the retina in of itself is not able to pick up the data. Mm. So light shining through the eye, it's you know shining on the screen. The screen is just doing absolutely nothing to pass it on down the wiring. So what they've been able to do is, hey, these little chips and implant them on the in the retina, and then it's able to see the light right. flash on it, and then it sends the signals up through the optic nerve. I recall we had a pretty interesting conversation about this thing. Yeah, so now they have gone through the second round of clinical trials. They're actually able to see that two of the nine patients that they, they implanted in were actually surpassed the visual resolution of the patients from the first trial. No kidding. And of those, three were able to actually read letters during observation and outside. And they were also reportedly able to recognize faces, distinguish objects such as telephones, read sides on doors. I watched one video. It's all in German. Hmm. They can't, any of these, they can't say names because they are actually, you know, human you know, human subjects that can't say anything about, but you could read the subtitles on it. He's, you know, he says, I, you know, I went out to dinner and going out, it was dark, but I decided, oh, I might as well turn them on. Mm-hmm. And this set is actually ones that you don't have to be hooked up with wires in the lab. You could actually wirelessly be outside and use them. So he stepped out of the restaurant and switched it on. And suddenly he's able to see what he realizes are uh, streetlights 
and that they're going down the road and getting smaller and, you know, to get more closer together. So he's able to kind of get an idea of depth. And he turns around, he's able to kind of see that there is a, you know, a shop window there because it's bright. And the street lamps. Yeah, and the street lamps. So able to kind of see these things. Now it's not giving people, you know, complete, you know, awesome vision that they're able to, you know, watch movies necessarily with, but just the ability to see, you know, bright versus, you know, light, dark versus light. There's one that video that was showing guys picking up socks, black sock, white sock, mm-hmm. and he was able to actually tell the sort difference. them. Yeah. You know, so he's able to sort them. Even, you know, these minor steps, can you see where the light is? Can you kind of see where, you know, where things are? Can you actually read some letters? That's a huge leap for them. Yeah. I, you so, know, I can uh, only imagine like for them, it's like from, it's, it's going from almost seeing nothing to, you know, I mean, it's a huge upgrade. It's, it, and it's yes. only the beginning. Yeah. Uh, ben David from the chat room says, can you read the top letter of an eye test? No, not quite up to that. It's more like they were showing, I saw some videos of, they were standing next to, very close to a screen that had the letters pretty much, they were right on top of it and the letters were almost half as, you know, big as their head. But they were able to kind of look around and say, hey, I can kind of tell that that's an E. I can tell that kind of that's a C. So even these small steps are able to improve the quality of life of these people significantly. I mean, you know, he saw the street lamps. So, you know, he's looking up and down a road. Now he could say, wait, no, street lamps are there. That mm. is the street. Mm-hmm. Let's stop. Streets over see, there, there's probably cars. <laughs> yep. You can see a car's headlights coming at you. But like, that's not a good thing to see coming at me. Right. I need to take a couple steps one way or the other. And they're able to see, you know, shapes. Is it an apple, a banana? These just wide level lines. You know, I think of the times where, you know, you have your eyes open for a really long time and then you close them. And you're kind of able to see the lines of where everything is because it's burned into your, your eye a little bit. Mm. And so even just being able to see those random outline shapes is going to give somebody a much better idea and ability to interact with the world around them. And can you start recognizing people? Then you walk and you're like, hey, there you are. You know, so to give these people a better idea and a, even small steps, as you were saying, is a huge step for, you know, when you're completely blind in these cases. Yeah. Yeah, and you imagine too, especially when you're going somewhere you've never been. Yes. You know, and you need any kind of sensor data you can get. Yes. Hmm. So these... The wireless versions are going and they're con- continuing to, and now they're actually starting to go to other centers. It's just this one hospital center that has been working out of, and now since it's gone to wireless devices, they're actually starting to move it to other locations as well. So I wonder, uh, the process of upgrading this chip is pretty probably invasive. So as the technology evolves, they would have to cut into the eye again. Yeah, well, essentially what – it's hard to say exactly what's going on. I'm reading between the lines. But I was seeing you know, the procedure itself is not very invasive. It's a small incision. They're able to get in the, into the back of the, the oh, okay. retina. Okay. But it may be that you know, phase one people, that's what they get. Yeah. You know, if you're on round three, then that's what you get. Now, you know, if you were the, 
you know, the first trial run, then, you know, in 10 years, they'll have much better ones. But you were there, you know, by that time, they may be able to go back and sort of replace, but it may be the case that there is no necessarily upgrading the hardware. Mm-hmm. So and, we'll have yeah. to see. And that's, you know, and that's just how sometimes how that medical technology works. Yes. All right. Well, now we have uh, some updates in regards to those uh, Russian meteorites, right? Yes. We talked about it last week as it exploded over Shabla- mm. Russia. Yeah, let's go with Russia. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to remember. <laughs> like, those are, those are outside my pay grade. I cannot pronounce those. Yelyabinsk, <laughs> roughly. Okay. So, now straight across this guy, you know, you saw all these videos. Mm, yeah. All we spoke about it last week is because everybody in... Russia has those, you know, dash cams. So we had a whole bunch of pictures of where it is, you know, the angle. So we're possibly able to reverse calculate that and say exactly where it came from. Oh, no kidding? Like for reals? Yeah, for real. Oh, now, science. Wow. Well, the problem is they couldn't use all of the videos oh. because a lot of the dash cams weren't synced up the times. In fact, some of them were like minutes apart. Oh, sure. So they weren't able to get very detailed accuracy from that. They were able to go onto two specific cameras. One at a square a security camera, both of which had very accurate timestamps. Mm. They were able to use those two videos with the very accurate timestamp to sort of see the angle of what it was coming from. One of them from uh, Revolutionary Square in Chablinsk. You can't, you see it and it's more like all you see is the shadows of the street lamps. I wasn't able to really necessarily see a lot of the meteorite itself. But what you could do from that is say the bright light is obviously 180 degrees away from the shadow. So you can watch the shadow of the, you know, the head of the, the top of the street lamp sort of track that out and say, okay, well, from that, we know exactly where where the street lamp is, how tall it is, so we can say, this is where it was in the sky. So sort of calculate that, calculate from the other camera, fairly far apart, uh, one in Corinco. So able to see these, match them up and say, all right, this is where it was coming from. They're actually able to also calculate from... Well, they used those with Google Earth, and they had one uh, geostationary weather satellite that was actually able to see a picture of it, to see the, the trail very briefly. So from these three different things, they're able to back-calculate and say, we know roughly what its orbit was, and it was in these asteroids that they call Apollo, which are sort of roughly hang out around Earth's orbit. They cross in and out of it. Hmm. So it's just one of those near-Earth asteroids, what they call Apollo class. So so they know the... It's kind of interesting because they're able to take you know, a handful of videos, see them all, and then narrow it down to two in a satellite and say, okay, with this data, we can tell you what the orbit of it was. That really impresses me, to be honest. That's, that's, I, that's science at its finest right there. Yes. Good old math. Yay, math. Uh, now, uh, before we jump into the uh, calendar and all that goodies, do we have some uh, some Mars rover updates and things of that nature? I see we have some links here, but I wasn't sure if we had a dedicated, you know, section for it. 
Oh. What do you think? Let's see. Well, before we get to Mars quite yet, okay. there's a dragon. The dragon, re- the SpaceX's supply mission to the space station. Oh, yeah. He's- Dragon X, right? Is that Dragon X? Is that yeah, what it's called? The okay. SpaceX, and it's the Dragon capsule. Oh, okay. And the second resupply, uh, resupply mission is actually going up on Friday with about 1,200 pounds of you know, supplies and medical equipment. So it'll, on that's Friday, sorry, March 1st, and it'll take about two weeks or so, three weeks for them to, you know, unload all that stuff, Mm -hmm. unpack, and then repack everything that they, you know, the trash and the science experiments that they need to get out back to Earth. So that'll be coming down on, it's arriving there on the 1st, and it'll come back on the 25th when it'll uh, do a splashdown. Now, I also want to give a quick shout-out on that to Tubesta, who actually also tweeted it to me, pointed it out on the Twitter bites, on the Twitter sphere of the, science. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Very nice. Well, uh, so uh, and how would he do that? Did he, did he have a certain Twitter handle that he uh, tweeted at? Yes, he did. That's JB underscore Mars underscore base. Okay, very nice. Um, all right. So uh, that's good. So they're continuing basically that contract they set up. Yep, it's a contract for a number of missions, and this is just the second number, second one on the list, and it's just kind of exciting that here we go. We're continuing on. All right, then, Heather, let's uh, let's blast off for our Curiosity update. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. Yeah. All right, so uh, what's the old rover up to? All right, we were talking about it digging into the rock. It had the, the drill that was able to rotate and percussive, so it's able to sort of hammer a little bit as well. They did a test drill and then they did, you know, a larger drill. It's the first time that any rover has actually drilled into a rock on Mars. Or so that was interesting is they dug in and you see all the, the tailings, the dust come out from it. Uh-huh. Now some of it is actually built into the flutes that you can capture some of that. It's able to capture that to get ready to deliver it to some of the, you know, uh, testing hardware. And that's actually being delivered sort of as we speak in the days surrounding this uh, recording of the show. Now, what they saw in itself was that the dust from the inside of the rock was not red. It was sort of grayish. Now, the red surface of Mars comes from this oxidation, Mm -hmm. the iron oxidation. Now, what it kind of means is that if the interior is not oxidized, then it actually gives us a much better chance of seeing you know, the possibility of life or ancient life or looking at fossilized things of this nature because the oxidation process in of itself kind of degrades all of that mm. biological materials. And it's not, getting, it's not getting much further than the surface of the, of the rocks, it appears. Yeah, well, our testing equipment, you know, has to do the surface. Now, the drill oh, actually can goes down right. uh, nearly an inch or two. Yeah. So it's able to actually get down in there, go sort of go back in time in the rock, 
so it, more towards the interior and able to see if there was life, it gives you a much better chance of being able to see it in that non-oxidized um, regolith in the in the materials, the dust, the rock, anything. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of exciting. They're they're looking at that. They are they have the dust ready to go. I think they've delivered it to one of the instrumentation, uh, Kim Cam, I believe, possibly. There's two different ones that they're delivering to, and they're kind of getting ready to do that, run the run the uh, samples through, kind of see what the data gives, and then see if they need to you know, get some more sample, dump that in. So we'll kind of see. This may take a, a little bit of time. There'd be a quite, probably quite a few uh, number of cybites right here talking about it. <laughs> Great. I love it. I love that stuff. About how it's stepping forward. This It's pretty much all going to be about the dust that the drill took. So it's still exciting, but it's all going to be in one sort of thematic event. Very nice. Okay. Well, Heather, the, uh, oh, I tell, the sci-fi computer tells me that we have a little calendar entry here to pay attention to. Yes. Uh, David McKay, he is a, the lead publisher, remember the, story about that Martian meteorite, ALH 8401, that they talked about the possibility of fossilized life. Mm, mm-hmm, yes. The lead writer of that paper, he unfortunately died on the 20th. Oh. So, yeah, he lead author on that. He was a number of different positions he's held in, in NASA. But one of the things is, no matter what you felt about that specific issue, because it was fairly controversial, mm. it, uh, you know, yeah. In the science community as well. Yeah, yeah. But what it did is it also prompted the establishment of NASA's Astrobiology Institute. Oh. So it kind of sparked this whole thing to say, all right, well, we need a specific institute to look at this. Now, I actually developed technologies for, you know, life detection and the use of lunar regolith as feedstock, radiation protection. So there's a whole bunch of things that he was looking at to say, you know, helping life on the moon, on Mars, those kind of things. And one thing that I didn't actually realize he was a part of was these uh, simulant. So obviously, there's only so much moon dirt around and not really a lot of Mars dirt here on Earth. So hmm. they make simulants. There's a couple of places um, in Hawaii where you can go to certain places and mix it up and they can, you know, spike it with certain materials. Does you need a little spiking with you know, iron or something, but it gets it really close to what we can think it is. So say, all right, lunar dirt is, you know, 81% this, 20% that. Now we're going to make something that sort of simulates that. He was one of the guys that really traveled out to Hawaii and did a lot of the connections for this uh, simulants. So, and I've used uh, some of those. He went out and picked out the, the perfect Mars dirt is what you're saying? Yes, it's a JSC one, and I've seen buckets. <laughs> I've dragged those buckets around my lab, <laughs> using using those for their test, my testing. So, is it red? Yes, it's very red. Oh, that's so cool! Does it does it have like a smell? Kind of. Yeah, like a kind of like a rock volcano kind of smell. I don't know. I try to use my dust mask. Cause there's a lot of teeny tiny dust. Yeah, you shouldn't huff the dirt. I understand. No, I don't huff the dirt. I have my little 
fan to suck all the teeny tiny grains in the air so that I'm not killing all those people around me. <laughs> and I have my little dust mask. But if I ever make it to Mars, I'm just going to breathe deep. I'm just going to, I'm going for it. I'm breathing deep, Heather. Well, Science I mean, assuming. I not suggest breathing deeply on Mars or the moon. Assuming. Sucking all of that dirt yeah. into your lungs. Assuming, yeah, yeah. They'd have to Especially moon. Don't do that. Right. Yeah. For various reasons. Yes. All right, Heather. Well, uh, why don't you say uh, we run over into the time machine? Okay. And, uh, let's you, jump made here. The, you made the upgrades and filled the tank, like I told you, right? Exclusively been ex- uh, expending all resources and time on upgrading the time machine. It is ready for this journey, Heather. Okay. Let's hit it. Here we go. Close the door. Right. Close the door. Oh, my gosh. It's here we go. We'll shake it a little bit. <laughs> We're going far. We're going far. Way far. We're still traveling. Wow. Wow. Okay. So uh, this week's time machine takes us to uh, 3,236 years ago. This week in science, March 5th, 1223 BC. Yes. The oldest recorded eclipse occurred. Now it's one plausible interpretation. Now for these way old, you know, scripts on clay tablets and stuff, now we can use, you know, cal- uh, computers to sort of back calculate and say, all right, at this location, here was a solar eclipse, there was a solar eclipse, and how many of these specific dates? Now they will to tell us from this clay tablet, kind of connecting it up. They originally thought it was like May third, thirteen seventy five, but they actually changed it to March the fifth, thinking that it actually actually a more fits more along the lines of what they think. Now. It's not now the first solar eclipse that was reliably recorded happened uh, in uh, China in only 180 BC, but this is sort of the first sort of written indication that there was a solar eclipse. One thing that I found interesting in all this is that they can actually use solar eclipses to date other historical events in ancient history. Oh yeah, so you can say. All right, there's a solar eclipse here. Oh no, and a year later the king monarchy was overturned because obviously, you know, the solar eclipse meant he was doing everything wrong and that was the end of the world. Now, if you just say, you know, in this time the king was overthrown. Now, if you say it was a year past this specific solar eclipse, you mm. can say round about this time in this location when was the solar eclipse? It was this specific day in this specific year. So kind of hammers a nail down. And then from that, you're able to sort of calculate backwards and forwards about various events that happened around it. And that really slides in events to a much better accuracy for when they happened. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's a very memorable and documented event, I'm sure. Yes, very often documented as the end of the world of great, great significance one way or the other. The world was ending or a great, you know, it was very bad or very good. Yeah, yeah. Whichever way they chose to interpret it for whichever the cause was. Yes. All right, Heather, well, let me recalibrate the Sci-Fi 2000. That way we can look up into the sky this week. Let's go. On Thursday, February 28th, about 11 p.m. local for anyone, you'll see a bright star near the moon, uh, Spica. That's going to be really, really close to the moon. <laughs> In fact, for people in southeast Mexico through central South America, it'll actually occult, which means the moon will actually pass in front of Spica. Mm. So it'll actually, you know, block it out. 
So you'll see the two of these very close together on the 28th. By the time you get around to Friday, March the 1st, so the moon will be kind of riding, rising in the east to southeast. On, on Friday, it'll be near Saturn. Saturn will be not as close. It'll be a little farther away, but on Friday, it'll be Saturn a little bit to the lower left. So the moon have a lot of company this week. Yeah, moon's partying. Yeah, when the right right next to the moon, that is the star Spica. And when it's a little bit farther away on a Friday, that is actually Saturn. Very and nice. really the only other exciting bit is Jupiter. Oh. It's going to be just after sunset. He's going to appear high in the southern sky, kind of moving more southwest as the evening progresses. Hey, oh, sunset, so. little Jupiter show. Very nice. Yep. Always like it when Jupiter represents. Yep. Well, of course, uh, all that summarized in the show notes as well as copious links and documentation for everything Heather has covered tonight. Right, Heather? Right. And you can always email the show, scibite at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love getting your emails. Yes. And uh, all those goodies. But Heather, I think that brings us to the end of the show, doesn't it? I think so. Well, that was that was a, uh, a lot to cover in a very compact amount of time. But thank you for the great show, Heather. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning to this week's episode of SciBite. Don't forget, we're live on Tuesdays over at jblive.tv, 7.30 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and then we're available Wednesday mornings for download. You can only subscribe and then get the show automatically every single week. That way you don't even have to think about it. And if you're one of our few iTunes users, please uh, consider a rate and uh, commenting on SciBite. That way other people find it because that helps us in their search algorithm. All right, everyone. Well, thanks so much for tuning to this week's episode of SciBite. See you right back here next week. <laughs>